Geogrieve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. This evening's programme comes from Galway, where, in a few moments, we'll be talking to the former activist, author, and now reluctant Christian, Paul Kingsnorth. We'll also be hearing from the fisherman, Seamus Branagh, about the annual seafarers' pilgrimage to Macdara's Island in Connemara. But first, we were very privileged to be invited into the enclosed convent of the Poor Clares on Nuns Island, where we sat with Mother Abbess under a yew tree in the large walled garden, a tranquil oasis right in the heart of Galway City. We're listening there to the voices of the Poor Clare Sisters. They've had a presence here for over 375 years. From beginnings in the early 17th century in Gravelines, northern France, to Ireland in 2022, the same life of prayer, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, work and community life continues today, inspired by their founders St. Clare and St. Francis. Sister Colette... You are the mother abbess of the poor Clare nuns in Galway. But before committing your life to this enclosed order, you grew up and lived not too far away in Salt Hill. That's right, yes. Uh, and I never dreamed growing up that I was would be a nun, not a mind, uh, poor Clare, entering a, a, an enclosed order. But yes, and funny, when, I, when the whole idea of actually discerning uh, religious life came on the horizon, I suppose... You know, I looked at some of the other Port Clare monasteries around the country and I felt it was a radical call and I suppose I wanted to go as radical <laughs> as possible. And But I just felt at home in this monastery when I used to visit. There was just a sense of feeling at home here. But before you came to this monastery, after school you studied at a UCG, um, now known as NUI Galway, uh, were you a typical young student or did those inklings about the monastery complicate things for you? Well, they didn't complicate things for me when I was in, in college because it just wasn't on my radar at all. And I suppose I was a typical um, student. I loved my time in university. It was like a whole new world dawned for me when, when I began university and I loved the social life and I made a lot of friends, good friends, dated people and you know loved the social life didn't like the study so much but uh, just I was a crammer uh, I still would be kind of inclined to put things on the long finger so it didn't impinge on on my my um, life in college and after college I believe you trained as an accountant mm-hmm. how was that uh, I always liked accountancy once I started um, you know, doing accountancy in school, did well at it, and that's why I did commerce. And I think it was just kind of, I fell into it after college, really. But it was very difficult. Uh, I had exams twice a year and working full time. And I suppose that might have fed into um, the religious awakening, maybe, I don't know how to call it, really, of uh, my faith coming alive because I used to find that I'd get more fervent coming up to exams and maybe go to daily mass or be doing novenas. Entering religious life, um, quite apart from the enclosed nature of your order, means um, foregoing or can mean foregoing many things. 
um, such as having a partner and perhaps children, a career, um, a social life. Do you ever have feelings of what if or even regrets? I'd say at different times you'd have regrets or maybe a sense of uh, the grass is always greener on the other side. There certainly would be would have been days like that, more so, not so recently, but, uh, you know, that's part of discerning. And with every decision you make, you you're limiting yourself in one way, but it's choice because each choice you make rules out other options. So I think with everyone's life, you have to embrace the choices that you make, the commitments that you make. I think commitment, uh, it's, it's, it's hugely character building because when you make commitments to projects, jobs, partners, family, it enlarges you because it takes you out of your comfort zone. And um, so, yes, you can have what-ifs, but basically you have to go with the commitment that you've freely chosen because love is, love is a commitment. Love is a decision. And you go with the good days and the bad days. So prayer is a major aspect of your life, if not the main job <laughs> of, of, of your life uh, as, a, as a congregation. Um, I believe that many people come to you with their prayers, asking you to pray for them and with them. Would you receive prayers by email or post or at the front door and what do you do with them when you get them and are there any that you um, have to refuse <laughs> is there anything St Clair can't cope with um, do you sift them do you edit them or do you just accept everything that comes through the door well I, I think we do pray for for everything we don't usually take them by email um, because we already have a lot of people coming to the door uh, just such a long history of us being here in the centre of the city of Galway. A lot of people coming physically. The the beautiful thing about about you know people coming to the door, and also the letters, it puts a, a face on a, on a on a problem, or the reality of a problem. Like um, some people might think that we're isolated from the reality of the problems that people have to endure in life. You know. Um, difficulties in families and all that kind of thing but you meet a person and you listen to them you sit with them and they tell their story and you're with them in it and so really um it is i suppose it puts flesh and bone on on all the and then that person can represent other people that have similar crosses to carry somebody's facing surgery well, you see a flesh and blood person there and, you know, you have a picture of them and then you just carry other people that are going through the same thing. It makes it more real, I suppose. I believe that people sometimes come to the door with things other than prayers, such as gifts, um, food. Is that a typical uh, part of an enclosed order's life or is that very much to do with this particular community in Galway? I'd say it's it's common enough, uh, probably. Uh, I can't really say whether it's 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 um, typical, but certainly, uh, I suppose because we're so long in Galway, there is a history of people coming and bringing food, uh, bringing donations, and it, it is amazing sometimes. Somebody would just bring something that you just run out of, or. Um, 
you might be like you might have some ingredients to make a particular thing and if I just had that other thing I could make this uh, and then it will turn up but it also makes you um, more uh, creative say with cooking like say if you're following a recipe and there's just one thing missing well what could I use instead of it kind of thing um, but yeah it's, it's quite amazing really uh, because we don't go shopping uh, so people bring us things now sometimes people will come to the door and they'll say is there anything particular you want but often they'll just come with random groceries and yeah so we've never been short thank god even right through uh, the pandemic and covid people were very very good to us they never forgot us which was lovely You've also engaged with the publishing world in recent years and uh, a lovely piece of music has has developed out of that in collaboration with um, the Franciscans. Yeah, it was amazing. We were approached by an editor of a publishing company about bringing out a book. Uh, she'd looked at our website and she thought there was a lot of um, material there. So we prayed about it and uh, decided, OK, we'd go with it and... It really was amazing to me that a book on prayer in our modern world would be a bestseller and it was a bestseller in Ireland two years in a row. And it was really amazing as well, the way it touched people's hearts. Uh, I think the title of it, Calm the Soul, uh, was attractive anyway when people would see it. But we got such beautiful letters back from people and people coming to the door and just felt it was like having a conversation with Jesus. I think some of the prayers in it are conversational. And we wrote a poem, at the, it's at the start of the book, called Calm the Soul as well. And several people said you should put it to music, you know, as if you can just click your fingers. And, but anyway, um, so we did kind of mess around with it. And uh, we used a tune that was a traditional tune, um, Colleen Jaskruch and Amo, but we changed it. Uh, significantly but it's based on that one and I think the the marrying of the words and the music really worked very nicely so we were able to collaborate with a lot of top class musicians and then for the third verse the sisters and some of the friars sang it together so we had a lovely time doing that and that uh, video is on YouTube and has really touched people as well it's amazing Sister Colette, Mother Abbess of the Poor Clares in Galway, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith It's a pleasure the soul, performed by the Paul Clares and their friends. We turn now to Paul Kingsnorth, who has written award-winning poetry, fiction and political writings, including The Dark Mountain Project and the Bookmaster Trilogy. A former activist who worked for Greenpeace, he now lives in East Galway with his wife and children and has recently converted to Romanian Orthodox Christianity after time as a Buddhist and a pagan. Paul, you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. Thanks for having me. You're originally from England, but eight years ago you moved to East Galway, close to Loch Derg. I hear you were in search of a different lifestyle. Yeah, well, it was a long, a long build-up, really. My wife was a, a doctor, a psychiatrist in the NHS. I was a writer and uh, 
and a journalist. Um, we lived in Oxford, worked in London, or I did. Um, and for years, especially after we were, um, we had our, our daughter, um, we talked about changing the way we lived. We wanted to homeschool our children. We wanted to have some land. We wanted to move to the country. We wanted to get out of the rat race. My wife wanted to stop being a doctor. We knew Ireland. We'd been here uh, in, in the past. We have friends here. Um, so to cut a long story short, we found a little place with a few acres of land and we thought, well, let's just try it. I hear that you've taken um, a very significant leap in your faith life recently. But before we get to that, could you tell us about the um, faith dimensions of your, your earlier years? Yeah, well, I think um, my life seems to be a series of leaps, actually. Um, not all of them planned out. Um, I, I mean, I grew up in, a, uh, I suppose, quite an ordinary sort of uh, suburban family in England. Um, and there wasn't really a faith dimension at all. I mean, that, which is very English, actually. We don't really do religion in England anymore. Um, and so my parents were not religious. I mean, there was religion at school. I, I, I remember learning the Lord's Prayer in assembly and doing nativity plays and having to listen to vicars who came to talk to us. And I didn't have very much interest in that. It didn't seem to speak to me very much. But I was always quite a romantic child. I'm still quite a romantic adult in a way. I'd always had a sense that there was something in the world that was very much bigger than we could put our finger on. Um, I experienced that myself through the natural world. When I was young, my dad used to take me on long walks across the hills for weeks on end. And um, I had a lot of experiences just sitting in nature, quite Wordsworthian experiences on mountains in which I had a real sense that there was something bigger than me. Um, and that gave me a desire to protect nature when I saw it being destroyed, which is kind of what uh, constructed the whole of my life in my 20s, really. Um, and yeah, so that, that was, I, I really came to believe that our society, our civilization is so disconnected from nature um, that, it's, that it doesn't have a sense of what it is anymore. Disconnected from our bodies, disconnected from nature, disconnected from culture, disconnected from God fundamentally. So I came to the reluctant conclusion as somebody who hadn't been religious at all, that maybe the, the God question was the one I was actually wrestling with, mm -hmm. which led me to probably about 10 years of experimentation. Um, I became a Buddhist for a long time. I practiced Zen Buddhism, went on a lot of retreats, did a lot of reading, but it doesn't teach you much about God. Uh, and that was what increasingly I realized I was dealing with. Um, so I started looking for, I suppose, what you could call a nature religion. And I looked around and I ended up actually becoming a Wiccan, becoming a modern witch, um, uh, which, which I'd thought was a wise decision, but it wasn't really, um, partly because I think there's some dark things in that place that you shouldn't be going towards, uh, but also because I didn't really fundamentally believe it because I didn't think that a lot of the stuff that was being taught was real. And in the end, what happened to me was I started to have uh, odd experiences. I had dreams in, in which I would I would see I would see Jesus appearing, and I had uh, experiences. I had visions, and I had a lot of people coming to me and suddenly talking about Christianity. And I realised to my horror that I was kind of being stalked. I was being <laughs> felt like I was being hunted by Christ. I wonder if um, if this was true for you because one of the problems with Christianity in the late 20th and early 21st century is it has been accused that it's been accused of is not doing anything near enough to restore human relationship with the natural world. Um, was that off-putting as you were drawn toward Christianity? I think there's, there's 
Some of that is true, yeah, certainly. But I, I think it's a bigger question, uh, and the more I looked into Christianity, and, and this is the reason I ended up in the Eastern Orthodox Church rather than in any Western church, is that the Western Christian churches, especially the Protestant churches, but not just them, the Catholic Church too, have been explicitly rational um, and moral and in some ways um, very worldly and political for a long time. And actually, to me, Christianity is about connection with Christ and connection with Christ is about connection with God. And that actually is also about connection with creation. So I ended up being drawn to as I say, the Orthodox Church, which is the last place I thought I would go, um, the first Orthodox monastery in Ireland has opened up near Shannon Bridge just a couple of years ago. It's run by the Romanian Church. And I, when I, once I'd plucked up the courage, I went along there to uh, do a divine liturgy on a Sunday. And I experienced a form of Christianity I'd never seen before, which was very, very all-encompassing and extremely powerful. And what I found in the Eastern Church was a lot of things that were missing in the Western Church, especially a sense that God is imminent, God is, is wound through the natural world, but also a real sense of, of mysticism and uh, a kind of deep, very unchanged prayer life and liturgical life that's pretty much been going on in the same way for the last thousand years. And I felt like I was being taken back to the, the Christian source, if you like. In terms of restoring our human relationship with the natural world. How does uh, Romanian orthodoxy help with that? Well, can you give us some... the orthodox the orthodox understanding of God is that God is both imminent and transcendent. He's everywhere all the time. But what I would say also is that um, what I see in orthodoxy is is what Christianity used to be here in Ireland and in England, because, of course, before the 11th century, when the Eastern and the Western churches split, there was no Orthodox or Catholic churches, let alone Protestant ones. There was just a Christian church. And if we look at the early saints of Ireland, um, particularly, I mean, there were something like 3,000 saints produced in this country before the schism. And they were, many of them, living in places like Skellig Michael, or in, in, in the caves in the Burren, or in... Uh, yeah, and, in the West, in the woods, they were imitating and trying to follow the lives of the desert fathers of Egypt. They were going to the wild places to find God. You can see that they realize, they, they experience God in everything. And once you do that, once you're following that path, it's impossible to have the destructive attitude to the natural world and to each other that we tend to have in this culture. So that's the way I see it. I used to believe when I was an environmental activist that Christianity was a kind of obstacle to uh, a good relationship with nature. Now what I believe is that if we follow the ancient path of Christianity properly, it can help us to come back into a sane relationship with the rest of the natural world. Paul Kingsnorth, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Thank you. And now we go to Karna, a village along Connemara's coast, where I'm delighted to be joined by Seamus Branagh, one of the local fishermen who, like his father and grandfather before him, each year on the 16th of July, goes on a pilgrimage to the tiny island dedicated to the local saint, Mukdara, which lies just across the water from his house. Seamus, you're very welcome to the Leap of Faith. All right, thank you very much. What's your route? <laughs> I believe this every morning. Uh, when you open your bedroom curtains, you see the island, Magdara's oratory. Is that right? That's true now. I'm just sitting here now in a little office I have. Uh, and 
as you said, every morning when I pull the curtains, I look across and see Chample Victara and the island. Tell us more about the annual pilgrimage. Um, what's, what's it about? The pilgrimage goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It's referred to back in the 1870s and it's even Roderick O'Flaherty referred to back in the 1600s. It's to honour the saint, Saint Victara, who was a saint from the 6th and 7th century, uh, who was the patron saint of the parish of Carna and Carrow but also, and more importantly, he's the patron saint of seafarers. And being a seafarer myself, a fisherman and a, a sailor, I have great affinity for the island and especially for the saint. Uh, my, my father, late father, was called Mahdara and my son, my eldest son, as well as called Mahdara. So there's a deep affection to the saint? <laughs> It's a deep, a very deep affection. Uh, I own a fishing boat and it's called Crochnacara. It's after the island. The island is called St. Macdara's Island in English, but in Irish it's called Crochnacara, the hill over the passage by the island. I'm the fourth generation of my family that have been in the fishing. The fishing business as such, my great-grandfather was lost at sea oh, in the 1890s, so it's, uh, it's passed down generation to generation, and especially the veneration and the pilgrimage across to the island. And so the pilgrimage across to the island, is it thought that it gives some protection to the seafarers, to the fishermen? Well, I like to think so. I've been in two or three very hairy uh, events at sea. Uh, Three years ago, I was coming from Greenland in an old sailing boat and we had a very bad night and I was on watch. And I just asked, well... Mahdara and God. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a saying, Gamaitufi Kujikta Jagus Mahdara, that would be under the protection of God and Mahdara. The one date we have, we have to be in Karna for the 16th of July. Either. That's the feast day of the yeah, saint. That's always the 16th. There's Mass on the island. Uh, in the olden days, prior to Mass, there used to be pattern. You used to do a pilgrimage seven times around the oratory and the cross and you recited the Ave Maria, the Our Father. And you, every time you surround, went around the chapel, you threw in a little stone just to keep count that you might, in case you mightn't do enough or you might do too much. <laughs> like, a, like a rosary bead. Uh, it's like a rosary scale. bead. You, you would have the rosary beads. Uh, and the last two years due to COVID, uh, there was no mass. So I did the pattern myself with, with my rosary beads. Seamus Brannock, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. You're very welcome. Good morning. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined this evening by Julie Langan, Mary Staunton and Declan Askin. Julie is from Newport, County Mayo. Mary is originally from Tormacady, but a long-time resident of Oranmore. And Declan is originally from Ballyshannon, but a long-time resident of Westport. This year, they gave a concert together as part of the Galway International Arts Festival, playing Irish traditional music, hailing almost entirely from County Mayo. Tonight, they're going to play a few tunes that tie in with the themes of this programme and tell us a little about the background of the tunes and how they came on them. Julie, I understand that collecting music from Mayo is a particular passion of yours. 
Um, I absolutely love music from Mayo, but I actually not a collector myself as such, but I would be always, I suppose I'm collecting to my own myself. I gather them. I suppose in the last few years I've been involved with uh, Emer Mayock and music of Mayo. And then, you know, you learn, hear these stories, no more than, you know, we're going to play that Friars Farewell to the Reek. You know, you, there we, we, if you go, you know, it's a lovely area and over there. And, you know, when you go to the Murrisk Abbey, it's just derelict. And to see that this was written there, you know, yeah. it gives it all life and, yeah. you know. Connection There's a lovely word in the Irish language called Chirgra. And Chirgra is a love of the land or the love of your place. And it helps discover the history too, doesn't it? That yeah. there were friars. You know, we look at this lump of yeah. you know, stones in Morisk mm-hmm. and think actually it helps bring it alive that one of them felt all the things that we're about to hear. So this is like um, a... It has got a strong pilgrimage connection in the sense that it's the Morisk is at the bottom. Morisk Abbey was the abbey at the bottom of Crowpatrick, and the tune is called the Friars' Farewell to the Reek. And the Reek is the local word for Crowpatrick. And the the friar who lived in Morisk Abbey who wrote this tune or about who this tune was written, uh, what would he have called the Reek? What would the name of the mountain, the holy mountain, be in those days? Uh, and Igla. As I understand it, reference to eagles yeah. and yeah. all that. It's amazing. I don't think there's eagles there now, but so. they did see an eagle up the back, uh, up out toward um, Brackdown. Yeah, they yeah, down. yeah, down. yeah, yeah. the other side yeah. of, yeah. which of course was the original pilgrimage route, was up that side. Um, yes, much um, easier. Yeah, let's hear about the fire. An eagle, yeah. And so, as the friar bids farewell to the reek, so too we say goodnight from Galway. Thank you for listening, and please join us for next week's programme when there'll be more music from Julie, Mary and Declan. 
as well as many other guests. The Leap of Faith was presented by Siobhan Garrigan. Sound supervision was by Colin Barker. The broadcast coordinator was Jarlath Holland. And the producer was Sheila O'Callaghan. Thank you.